Hello, everyone, and welcome to Carpet City Cinema, a Gila Films podcast. I'm David Weaver. And we got some good news on the last Frankenstein front. Got an email from our distributor the other day and said that he's going to have a check disc to us shortly, which is uh, where we watch uh, basically a test Blu-ray and make sure there's no last errors that we need to correct or f- adjust. I just have to send over a couple files to him. Uh, we had to do a little, little bit of tweaking on the subtitles and needs a music track for the menu, but we are seeing the end in sight. So very exciting uh, to have that finally come about. Our film has also been added to an additional streaming platform within like the last week or so, Discovered, uh, Discovered also known as Discovered TV. Uh, it is free there, uh, so check that out. It's uh, yet another way you can uh, get down with our Fright Flick. So we'll have a link to that up soon on the Gila Film website. And if you go to the Facebook page, we have a link there to that. In broader Gila Films news, uh, our producer extraordinaire, Jay Leonard, has launched a new podcast of his own with Sean Barnes, who is uh, the producer on his films that Jay directs. And it's called Super Salad Podcast. Uh, So check it out. It's on Spotify and I think iTunes as well. And, uh, you know, give it a listen. Give it some... uh, good ratings, give some five stars, some thumbs up. And uh, I know this is an Instagram account for that now. I don't know if there's any other social media yet, but uh, check it out and uh, support our Mohawk Valley movie-making mentor. In the uh, arena of new title announcements, some exciting uh, developments for all us James Cagney fans over at Kino Lorber. They are going to be releasing on Blu-ray for the first time ever, uh, Cagney's 1945 film Blood on the Sun, which this is a movie that's kind of languished in budget label hell. It fell into the public domain back in the 70s, so most of the DVDs out there have been really crummy quality. There was, a, I guess, a DVD uh, a while ago that did actually uh, source the negative, but you know, there, overall, this, this is a film that um, just really hasn't had a great uh, stellar presentation. And uh, this is a... The second film Cagney did after winning the Oscar for Yankee Doodle Dandy. Um, after winning that award, he and his brother William Cagney formed their own production company. And so William would produce, James would star in the movies, and the first film they made was a, a, a movie called Johnny Come Lately. And then they followed that up with this one, Blood in the Sun, which is it's kind of like a World War II movie, but it's technically it's a pre-World War II movie. In the film, uh, Cagney plays an American news editor in Japan in like 1929-ish, uh, who gets in the hot water with the Japanese secret police and powers that be for because his uh, newspaper publishes about the existence of a document uh, that outlines a plan for the Japanese to conquer the world. And the interesting thing about this film uh, is that it gives you a chance to see Cagney employing martial arts. Some people actually call it the first martial arts movie ever. I don't know exactly if that's true or not, but Cagney did uh, study judo and performed his own stunts in the film. So that alone is definitely worth checking out. But it's a solid film. I saw it many years ago. Uh, It's definitely very entertaining. Directed by Frank Lloyd, who was a a two-time Best Director Oscar winner back in the 30s. He did Cavalcade and Mutiny on the Bounty. And, uh, you know, good cast. Uh, Sophia Sidney is the female lead. Uh, and uh, Rosemary DeCamp, who played Cagney's mother in Yankee Little Dandy, here plays uh, a supporting role. So it's interesting to see them kind of reteaming. But yeah, Blood in the Sun is going to be a uh, Blu ray from Keen Wilbur's deal with Paramount that they have going on right now. And it's going to be uh, a 4K scan of the 35mm nitrate film grain. And the movie also actually took home an Oscar uh, for Best Art Direction. Most of Cagney's, if not all of Cagney's films, I think, up to Yankee Doodle Dandy are Warner Brothers. So, like, you know that they'll pretty much, you know, everything is pretty much on DVD that can be and most of it will probably find its way to Blu-ray at some point, I would think. But some of the stuff he did after, you know, after he left Warner Brothers for a while, after he won the Oscar for Yankee Doodle Dandy, he did do some films for Warner Brothers later on down the road. But he kind of moved to all these different outfits. Like he did some stuff at Fox and uh, Universal. Um, so it's interesting to kind of see those slowly kind of get checked off the list of uh, movies that he made. 
that haven't really had a proper or any release um, on physical media. The kind of the big one for me is he directed a movie, Cagney, uh, called Shortcut to Hell in the late 50s. And it's a uh, based on the same Graham Greene story that was adapted for the uh, classic film noir, This Gun for Hire. And I don't... Cagney might be in, it in like an introductory capacity to kind of introduce the film. I don't know, though, that he actually even does that. But that movie's never been released in any format. Um, and that's at Paramount, too. So uh, I know that with this new Paramount deal, Kino Lorber has mentioned they have a bunch of film noir titles in the pipeline and really, fingers crossed, hoping that that might uh, finally make it out. I'd love to, I've never seen the film, of course, you know, and I never even recall it airing on TV, but I would love to kind of see what he brings as a director. That would definitely be interesting to check out. I'm a huge fan of Cagney. Um, I mean, Angels with Dirty Faces and White Heat, just incredible films right there. But the guy had great range because then he would do these uh, big musicals like Footlight Parade and, of course, Yankee Little Dandy. So just incredible talent. And actually, speaking of Cagney, I forgot to mention, and I could have mentioned this last episode, uh, Criterion Collection announced their February releases. And among them is The Roaring Twenties, which is uh, one of Cagney's great, truly great gangster films. Not quite, it's like a notch below Angels with Dirty Faces, but again, finds him opposite uh, Humphrey Bogart as antagonists of each other. And uh, was directed by Raoul Walsh, who collaborated several times with Cagney. He directed him also in White Heat and The Strawberry Blonde. Uh, Really good film that Warner Brothers had released at on DVD. And people were kind of wondering why it was taking so long to go to Blu-ray and the powers to be at Warner uh, Warner Archive Collection, which is kind of like the main outlet that Warner's has for their kind of older classic titles, said that, you know, don't worry, it's coming, it's in the works. And so Criterion is busting out with it, and actually they're doing it in 4K, a 4K of it. So that, that would be awesome to finally pick that up. Lost a couple heavy hitters this past week in the film industry, or at least the news of their passing finally circulated. And um, the first one to... Uh, that I heard about was uh, director Elliot Silverstein, who passed away age 96. And he was uh, pretty prolific in uh, television throughout the 50s and into the 60s, uh, directed episodes of The uh, Twilight Zone, Route 66, Half Gun Will Travel, and then uh, got his uh, feature film directing uh, debut with Cap Blue, the Western comedy starring Jane Fonda and uh, Lee Marvin, uh, which you know, was very successful. Marvin ended up winning the Best Actor Oscar for his uh, work on that. And followed it with a handful of films throughout the next uh, 15 years. Uh, his uh, next gig after that was a film called The Happening, which didn't really make a big splash in its initial release. Uh, it starred uh, Anthony Quinn as a, uh, a businessman who gets uh, kidnapped by these uh, uh, youngins. And kind of its biggest place in film history now is that it was the film debut of Faye Dunaway. But right after that, he went back to the Western genre and had another big hit with A Man Called Horse, starring Richard Harris, uh, which got uh, good reviews, came out in 1970, and by 1976 had uh, made $44 million worldwide on a just a $5 million budget, which, especially back then, when you figure out inflation and all that fun stuff, uh, speaks very highly of its success and spawned two sequels. Next up after that, he did a film called Nightmare Honeymoon in 1974. And it's kind of, I've seen the film. Uh, I mean, it's enjoyable enough. It's, you know, about uh, newlyweds on their honeymoon and they witness uh, a pair of hitmen committing a murder. But it's really, it's such a strange kind of uh, blip in Silverstein's filmography. Because, so you have... You know, it starts off with, obviously, big with Cat Blue, and then The Happening doesn't, you know, again, it doesn't really make how much of an effect, but it's still, you, you know, big cast, Anthony Quinn, and, uh, George Maharis was in it, um, you know, right back uh, with success with A Man Called Horse, and then after Nightmare Honeymoon, the next film that he would direct would be The Car, the 1977 universal horror film which uh, starred James Brolin, who was well-known at that time. Of course, he had already done Marcus Welby and been in films like Westworld. And I don't know how the car did in its initial release financially. I mean, I, I know that the reviews weren't very kind, but maybe it, even if it do, didn't do well in its theatrical release, it obviously has had enough of a following over the years um, that they did a like direct-to-video sequel a few years back and brought back Ronnie Cox for that. But 
Nightmare Honeymoon in the middle is just kind of like this odd thing. It doesn't have really, the biggest name in it is Pat Hingle, uh, you know, Commissioner Gordon from the Michael Keaton Batman. And the film has, it's definitely uh, stronger content than you would see in a TV movie at that time. But it has this kind of like almost television quality to it. Not even, and I'm not even saying the way that he directed it, but just it just, it just feels like an anomaly. And then you start digging into the history of the film, which came out in 74, like I said, and it actually started uh, out as a, a movie that was supposed to have been directed by Nicholas Rogue, the legendary uh, British uh, cinematographer turned director who did films like The Man Who Fell to Earth and Don't Look Now. And, you know, there's uh, rumors that W.D. Richter uh, originally worked on the script and he, you know, he uh, is Academy Award nominated writer for Brew Baker. He directed Buckaroo Banzai. And at one point they were recording like, you know, Ryan O'Neill, J. Michael Vincent to be in the film. And... And that eventually morphed somehow into Silverstein coming on board, and the you know the films being obviously retooled in so, uh, somehow fashion because Rogan in an interview said he had kind of envisioned this with these comedic elements, whereas you watch the actual film and it's a straight you know straight up thriller. And then the um, you know apparently uh, Silverstein wanted to work with unknowns in it, and uh, the the lead roles eventually went to Dak Rambo, uh, who at that time had start on the TV show, The Guns of Will Sonnet, and then an actress named Rebecca Diana Smith, who basically did one other movie role after that in a guest spot on a TV show and then stopped acting. And um, the film, they they filmed it in 72. It got a theatrical release of some sort in 74. Didn't play uh, L.A. even until after that. And it's I don't know it's just kind of this really interesting. It's that kind of it's that kind of film that like the history of it and the fact that you know, someone like Silverstein was involved with it, you kind of wonder more about um, the the genesis of it and why it, why it's there. Uh, definitely a film I need to revisit, though, after, you know, reading about his passing. But like I said, he did that. He did the car afterwards. And then basically just went back to uh, TV directing for the most of the rest of his career. He did some TV movies. He did, like, uh episode of Picket Fences and episodes of Tales from the Crypt. Uh, in 94, he did come back to uh, direct a kind of a B-action movie called Flash Fire with uh, Billy Zane and Louis Gossett Jr. But kind of, uh, aside from, like, Capaloo and The Man Called Horse, one of the big contributions he's really known for in his life was that he was instrumental. He was really instrumental um, in protecting the rights of a director. Uh, at the DGA, Director Skills of America, the union, he was key in creating what's called the Bill of Creative Rights. And one of the things that that uh, laid out is uh, the right of a member of the DGA to having a director's cut. And it's pretty much universally recognized, you know, his uh, his unbelievable importance to directors everywhere for being the, the f- real cheerleader behind that and the guy who helped, uh, you know, orchestrate that and making that a reality. Now, going across the Atlantic, uh, we lost another highly regarded uh, filmmaker, director, and that would be Aldo Lado, the Italian director. And he worked in many genres, but he's probably best remembered for his work in giallo films, uh, specifically uh, Short Night of Glass Dolls, uh, Who Saw Her Die, and Night Train Murders, which is a Christmas uh, has a Christmas setting to it in case you're itching to uh, watch that, which is kind of like the last house on the left on a train. It, well, it basically is last house on the left on a, on a train, but, um, he also directed the, uh, star Wars rip off the humanoid with Richard Keel. Uh, but you know, again, this was involved in many other genres and is really highly regarded for his work in horror. And, uh, who started die? That was again, that, that's one, both that and the train murders. I haven't seen those probably since around the time I saw nightmare honeymoon. It's probably been God, 15 years or so. Um, but I do know that, you know, who saw her die definitely had some really nice stylish touches. Uh, stars George Lazenby, one of his post James Bond roles. Uh, so definitely, uh, has some stuff in his filmography worth checking out. Now, in the last episode, we mentioned uh, the passing of John Bailey, the famed cinematographer of movies like The Big Chill, and we're just kind of commenting on how, yeah, there's always a a political aspect to any kind of award ceremony. Sometimes people, you know, uh, never get nominated or win an award despite being highly skilled and respected within their field, and you kind of wonder, why does that happen? How does that happen? Uh, you know, we we talked about Bailey and all the incredible movies he had shot and the fact that he was never nominated once for a Best Cinematography Oscar. And uh, just the other day, 
we uh, had the passing of Victor Kemper, Victor J. Kemper, age 96. And it's kind of the exact same thing. Uh, I mean, this guy was just an incredible uh, body of work he left behind and never once nominated for the uh, Best Cinematography uh, Academy Award. And again, you know, awards have, you know, debatable importance and debatable influence. And we've all heard stories of people like, you know, Richard Burton or Peter O'Toole being nominated like, you know, half a dozen times and never winning over the course of their careers. Uh, you know, interestingly, uh, Myrna Loy, Ever G. Robinson, uh, John Barrymore, those those three were never nominated even once for an Oscar in their uh, lifetime. So, uh, you know, there's not, obviously not always a direct correlation between, uh, you know, awards and greatness. Uh, you see that in all areas, though. You know, there's people who aren't in the Baseball Hall of Fame who, uh, more because of their character than um, any uh, issue with their stats or even with doping. But I'm just, you know, bear with me here. Listen, this is a, in chronological order. I just want to run through a list of some of the heavy hitters from Kemper's career. This, these are films shot by Victor Kemper. So going back to, like, he started in 1970, and here are some of the films he shot. Okay, he did Husbands, the John Cassavetes movie, The Hospital, the, the, you know, the Oscar-winning George C. Scott flick, The Candidate with Robert Redford, Seamus with Burt Reynolds, The Friends of Eddie Coyle, the Gambler with James Caan, Dog Day Afternoon, Bob Rafelson's Stay Hungry, Ilya Kazan's The Last Tycoon, uh, Elaine May's Mikey and Nikki, Slapshot, Audrey Rose, Oh God, Coma, Eyes of Laura Mars, Injustice for All, The Jerk, The Final Countdown, um, National Lampoon's Vacation, Cloak and Dagger, one of my all-time faves, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Clue, and we would not be forgiven if we didn't also mention Tommy Boy. But just in terms of, uh, you know, I mean, just some really, you know, classic films in there. Like, I'm just thinking Dog of the Afternoon, obviously, and a lot of big box office hits there. That's a really a pretty, uh, pretty staggering uh, legacy he leaves behind. And, uh, yeah, never, no never even nominated. What the heck's up with that? But uh, rest in peace to him. And then last was uh, actress Frances Sternhagen uh, passed away. And she was 93, and one of those uh, who's just really memorable in kind of like the three big arenas of acting, you know, stage, film, and television. And so on the, on the stage, she is actually a two-time Tony Award winner. Um, she won a Tony for uh, the Neil Simon's The Good Doctor and then for a revival of The Heiress. But she also um, had another five nominations beyond that, and one of, the, one of the roles that she created on Broadway was in On Golden Pond, the role of Ethel Thayer, which was played by Katherine Hepburn in the film version. Um, on television, uh, Sternhagen, she uh, earned three Emmy nominations for, combined for playing uh, Cliff, Cliff the Mailman's mom on Cheers, and then Charlotte's mother-in-law, Kristen Davis's mother-in-law in Sex and the City. And she also was on ER and The Closer in recurring roles. And then, of course, countless uh, big screen films that she popped in, generally more like you know character parts, but you know, movies like Misery, The Hospital, Outland, uh, Up to Down Staircase, Communion, Raising Cain, and just one of those unforgettable great uh, character actress looks to her and voices uh, truly gifted performer so sad to see her leave us all right we are now officially in christmas movie viewing season christmas television season it basically starts on the black friday the day after thanksgiving um, and my girlfriend and i we've watched uh we'd already watched several tv episodes and such uh in the, the days following thanksgiving but the other day we finally sat down and had a chance to watch our first christmas movie of the season and it's a, a film that many people may not be familiar with or even realize it's a christmas movie but it's you know, really incredibly enjoyable enjoyable flick from 1945 universal pictures lady on a train and this movie starred deanna durbin who if you're not familiar with her she was like one of i think actually there was a time where she was the biggest star at universal pictures and basically saved that studio from bankruptcy she was hugely popular throughout the 30s and early 40s uh in films like three smart girls 100 Men and a Girl. It started with Eve, which I highly recommend. Um, and they were uh, musical comedies that she was in. At that time, even though sometimes you could be a younger performer and get nominated for an Academy Award, they also would every so often give out an Academy Award for like outstanding juvenile performance. It was more for like your body of work or the body of work of a year. And like Shirley Temple got one. Um, Margaret O'Brien got one. I think Haley Mills was the last person to get that. And it wasn't something that necessarily did every year. 
But Durbin did get one of those as well. So in the mid-40s, uh, she was working with this producer named Felix Jackson, who would actually uh, briefly later become her husband. And uh, he, they were working to kind of change up her image, give her a chance to kind of shine in different material. And one of these uh, attempts was a film called Christmas Holiday, which is, like the title implies, set at Christmas time. And a movie we might kind of have a full episode about at some point. Definitely an interesting film. Um, it's you know probably the darkest material she did. It was directed by Robert C. Abmack, uh, the famous uh, film noir director who did The Killers. Following that movie, which was definitely also a very, uh, very big, heavy, dramatic role for her. Following that, she they decided to also kind of continue in this uh, vein of just just shifting her image somewhat with Lady on a Train, which is absolutely 100% uh, a comedy. Um, it's a mixture of comedy and murder mystery and Christmas film and also film noir. But it's it's different than the types of comedy she had done previously. You know, the, and the singing this time takes much more of a background. There's, in fact, there's only three songs in the entire movie, and they're really... Um, you know, there's there's a scene where she has to pose as a nightclub singer. She has to take someone's identity, so that gives her a chance to sing a couple tunes. Then, and there's another part where she sings "Silent Night," uh, but it's really definitely would not fall into like that kind of much more musically driven uh, classification that some of her earlier films had. And the film is based on a story written by uh, Leslie. I, I'm sure I'm butchering his last name, Ch Charteris, or Charteris, who was the creator of the famous character, the Saint Simon Templar, um, who had been the subject of many movies in the famous Roger Moore TV series in the '60s, and then later the not so famous Val Kilmer film. And in it, um, Durbin plays uh, a girl named Nikki Collins, who's. Uh, comes from a successful family. She's coming to visit a relative in New York City from the West Coast. And as her train is approaching the station, this is for the Christmas holidays, she witnesses, uh, while reading a murder novel, a murder mystery novel, she witnesses a man uh, killed, uh, an old man being murdered through a window of a building they're driving by. And she can't see who the killer is, but she sees the murder take place. And so the rest of the film is her in a very screwball comedy kind of fashion, uh, trying to convince the police that a murder's happened, and then, of course, trying to solve it herself, trying to get uh, the author, this author of the murder mystery <laughs> book she was reading to uh, help her out. And uh, meanwhile, of course, she starts uh, drawing the attention of the real killer. Um it's really just a terrific blend of these different genres. Uh, you know, as a film noir, uh, because, you know, it's, it's definitely not something I would have thought of as a film noir at first. I would have been like, okay, it's it's uh, a murder mystery comedy. But Kino Lorber, they're the ones who put this out on Blu-ray. It had previously been available in the Universal DVD set. And when they released it, they put it in one of their film noir sets. And I, as I was watching it uh, the other day with my girlfriend, which is probably like the third or fourth time I've seen it, I did, I did start to really impress upon me how how it's basically film noir uh, in turn, in style in visual style. I mean, it's just incredibly the the lighting and the the uh, almost like expressionistic uh, use of shadows is is very heavy heavily film noir esque, and it's not totally surprising because the movie was shot by a guy named uh, Elwood Burdell or Woody Burdell, and he shot the killers the the which is you know one of the most famous film noirs of the 40s uh which was directed by robert c Adback, who as we mentioned directed uh deanna durbin and christmas holiday and uh burdell also shot uh phantom lady which was another uh really famous 40s uh noir that um that uh c Adback had directed he had shot christmas holiday with deanna and he would also shoot the unsuspected which is a really interesting film noir over at warner brothers that came out in 47 a lot of the rest of his body of work is you know, kind of like standard universal fare. He did some of their horror stuff at the time. And I don't know, I'm kind of curious, like what, to what degree he brought a film noir look to this movie on his own from having done that with Siad Mac on those earlier films. The Killers was after Lady on a Train, but Christmas Holiday and Phantom Lady preceded it. And that's not me trying to take away from the director of the film. Uh, his name was Charles David, but this was the first film of only two films he ever directed. He had been, uh, in France, uh, working in various capacities in the industry there, and, uh, and then over in England, um, working as uh, assistant director and production manager, and eventually made his way to the U.S. All, of course, this being the this traveling, this uh, 
emigration being the result of you know Hitler uh, rising to power in World War II. And so I don't want to say that he didn't, you know, have any voice in the look of the film, but it just the fact that, uh, uh, you know, Bridell had come off these uh, film noirs, uh, working with uh, one of the most famous directors of that genre, it really does kind of make me wonder what he brought to this uh, in terms of that look. And the film also, it's interesting the way it's shot, how it, it adapts its style to what's happening at the moment. Like, it doesn't try to bring that necessarily bring that film noir high contrast use of stark shadows to every scene in the film i mean when it's working with uh you know more some of uh, the more comedic moments it's it's kind of relying on more traditional setups and camera angles and then when it switches gears into some of the more darker parts of the film the more suspense heavy parts of the movie then it really just dials up that that film noir look it's funny because there's a scene in the film where um it's more of a comedic part where there's some banter going on between uh, Deanna Durbin and uh, a character played by Edward Everett Horton, who is, you know, a veteran uh, comedic character actor, was in tons of movies, a bunch of movies with Frank Capra and was later on in F Troop. And he plays basically uh, an employee of her father's. Her father's a very wealthy businessman who has uh, been sent to kind of uh, chauffeur her and chaperone her while she's in the city. And they're having this comedic bit back and forth. And then her father calls and she has to get on the phone with him. And uh, he asks her, you never see the father. It's always off camera. But he asks her to sing uh, Silent Night for her. And of course, it's a Christmas movie. So we got to do that. And just like from one cut to the next, it goes from this, like I said, this very strong traditional, uh, you know, 40s comedic uh, filming to this close-up glamour shot of her as she's laying down on a bed singing Silent Night and it's looks like it's, you know, shot through uh, hazed gauze and everything. It just like, every time we watch it, my girlfriend and I get a crack out of that because there's like not even any attempt to have some kind of transition between those two moments. It's like, all right, here we are. We're going for the uh, the magazine cover look now for uh, Deanna when she's singing the song. Another cool thing about the film is just its use of locations. Um, I mean, it's the film is basically entirely shot on you know sets down sound stages but just it's constantly moving you know it starts out on the train and she's never really staying in one place once she gets to new york city she's you know she's off to the police department to kind of warn, tell them about the murder she's in her the apartment that's been rented her for new york city she's over at the um, mystery writer's apartment uh and which is has this cool like uh it's this, uh, you know, higher class, because uh, he's a successful novelist, higher class apartment with like two levels. Uh, there's a bunch of scenes that take place um, at this, uh, basically this secluded mansion where this man she saw murdered where he had resided. And um, it's very wintry out 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 in the snow-covered uh, grounds of the estate. And then there's um, some really great stuff that takes place at this, later on at the end of the film, that takes place at this uh, industrial building that, that the family of this murdered man owns and where uh, Deanna is kind of being chased through this very, uh, again, very film noir lit um, uh, complex where there's like these, there's this one room where it's just full of like, I don't know if it's supposed to be like road salt or sand, but it's just, it looks kind of like these dunes that she's kind of trying to run across and hide on inside a building. Um, so it's just some really unique ideas that they had for where some of the action should took place and they kept it moving constantly. Uh, and, and this, I do give kudos to director Charles David for, there's a lot of, uh, in the middle of the film, a big section of the movie that takes place in this, this nightclub called the circus which has like this circus theme there's like dancers who look like they're uh uh like jungle cats and um uh, a guy dressed like a ringmaster and uh durbin like i said she goes there because one of the key people involved in this murder plot is this nightclub singer that she then through some events has to kind of take her place impersonate her and there's a lot of different uh Within this within this nightclub, there's a lot of different like mini locations. There's a dressing room for this nightclub singer that has uh, a has an entire wall window, which allows people you inside to look out to the nightclub floor, but people on the outside they think it's just a mirror. And then there's offices where like some of the evil henchmen uh, of the uh, unknown killer work. And there's you know uh, like this cellar space and basement space. And the film while it goes through this kind of like this midsection of the movie 
is constantly ba moving back and forth through these locations. Sometimes it's just to cut from one action to another. Sometimes there's actually like chases and fights that take place within this uh, midsection of the film. And the geography of it never gets confusing. It's a kind of a setup where you could very easily be confused as to where are you and uh, you know what part of this building are we in? Are we still in the building? Have we cut to a scene outside of the building? Um, the use of space uh, and the use and how they how they show the characters moving from one part of this rather large building to another, um, and while interplaying that with, you know, kind of little kind of little things thrown in the mix like that that uh, one way mirror slash window, um, which kind of plays with your sense of space uh, as you're watching the film, um, the way that they. Uh, take the movements of characters from one place in the building to another and inter intermix that with action scenes. So like, you know, we have to go from uh, place A in this building to place B, or we're going to do that not just following the character as they walk from one place to another or cutting from one place to another. We're going to actually have them be chased from one place to another. We need to go from this part of the building to another part. Well, let's put a chase in there at the same time, or let's put an action beat in there uh, where someone has to like smash through a window or something like that. And it keeps the, uh, this midsection of the film, which could easily become very uh, stage bound. Like it's, it could become very much like a play at this point where you're kind of stuck in one building uh, and it just doesn't really feel cinematic. And they keep it cinematic by constantly, uh, constantly through this just kinetic uh, filmmaking. And, uh, you know, I would have to give uh, praise to David. I'm sure he must've had some say in that. It's definitely does not, when you think about this as, you know, him being a first time director, obviously he'd been in the industry for a while, but still, even if you've been an AD for a while, assistant director, production manager, just going from that to actually directing a feature film, that's a, still a big jump. And for him to pull off something very complex like that, it kind of reminds me of going back to like, we talked over the 4th of July about the movie 1776, the musical uh, about the uh, signing of the Declaration of Independence. And one of the really impressive things about that, which was directed by a guy named Peter Hunt, it's just how he kept, you know, he he was basically adapting a play for this for the uh, film medium, and it had all these characters uh, that you had to remember, all these historical characters. Uh, it had some well-known character actors in the cast, but there weren't any big stars, and a lot of it took place within this one location, Independence Hall, and yet the film feels like a movie. It never feels like a film play, and I think Lady on a Train that that it's really impressive to me each time I see it. Uh, how this lengthy section in the middle is just really handled uh, so well and and so with such energy. Uh, another another big great thing about this film is the cast. It is littered with character actors. It's insane. I mean, we mentioned Edward Everett Horton's in it. Uh, William Frawley, Fred Mertz. Uh, plays the uh, police desk sergeant who uh, Deanna tries to first report the uh, murder to. Um, as she kind of gets embroiled in this uh, whole murder plot and starts finding out more about the uh, the family of the deceased man, uh, she meets his nephews, uh, played by Dan Durier, the great, uh, which is great casting because this film has a wonderful screwball comedy touch to it, yet it's still rooted in these mystery genre and like we talked about the film noir style. And Dan Durier, of course, was a staple of film noir, so well known for it in films like Too Late for Tears and Black Angel and The Woman in the Window and Scarlet Street. Um, so to have him be in this uh, twist on the genre is a really nice touch. Um, and Ralph Bellamy is the other nephew. Um, Ralph Bellamy at this time, of course, had already uh, received an Oscar nomination, Best Supporting Actor for The Awful Truth. He had been in His Girl Friday, um, but interestingly this would be the last film he would make for uh, a good 10 year stretch and he would be working on the stage and in television he had a show on for a while called Made Against Crime but he would return to filmmaking in the 50s and of course as everyone knows have a whole new generation of fans uh, in the 80s and 90s with movies like Trading Places and Pretty Woman um, but yeah it's great to I'm a big Duryea fan especially of those two you know I'm not, no no, no disrespect to Ralph Bellamy, he's a solid actor, but really cool to see Duryea in this kind of role. Um, and then, you know, not so familiar names, but uh, playing uh, their aunt, which I guess would be the murdered victim's sister-in-law is Elizabeth Patterson, another great character actress who most people remember from the TV show I Love Lucy. She played Mrs. Trumbull, one of the tenants in the uh, uh, 
in the uh, Ricardos and Mertz's uh, building who would babysit little Ricky. Uh, Samuel Hines plays the family attorney. That's, uh, again, not a name you might recognize, but you know him because he plays Jimmy Stewart's dad in It's a Wonderful Life. Alan Jenkins and uh, you know, just a one of the most familiar uh, faces of 30s and 40s films playing gangsters and hoods uh, in movies like Dead End and Brother Orchid. He plays one of the villains in the film. So it's just incredibly littered with these uh you know, these wonderful, incredibly talented uh, character performers who just so um, so effortlessly uh, deliver this great, really entertaining material. Uh, Got to take a moment to talk about David Bruce. He is the actor who plays uh, the mystery writer. So one of the kind of the cool things about this film is that it does and yet it doesn't really have a leading man um, because you have this mystery author uh, named Wayne Morgan, played by David Bruce, who um, has a very uppity uh, girlfriend, fiance, who we meet in the film, played by Patricia Morrison. You have these two nephews that we mentioned, Dan Durier and Ralph Bellamy, and all three of them, at at some point, um, you kind of start thinking in terms of, oh, one of these guys is going to be... end up being that the quote-unquote leading man because you know it's a 1940s film so of course she's going to have to ride off into the sunset with someone but not uh, not one of them really kind of dominates in that role or really really uh, comes across strong in that kind of position until until you're in the film quite a bit which is is nice to see because it's just something it's a it's something different it's you know you essentially have like three leading men um who aren't necessarily competing with each other as characters in the film for Durbin's attention but who are kind of competing with your mindset as to you know how is this going to play out in terms of their relationship with her i mean ralph bellamy and dan durier both uh, find her attractive find her character attractive and and made no bones about hiding that and then you have this david bruce character the mystery writer who at first, he wants nothing to do with her because she, you know, she's trying to drag him into solving this mystery, and it's just kind of disrupting his his life with his fiance. Um, and then, as he starts to, uh, you know, uh, interact with her more, he finds himself drawn both into her play and to her. But Bruce had kind of an interesting career, um, and this is—I don't know—you could probably argue that this is kind of like his biggest film role like this is the closest he ever came i think to being like a star because he started out you know a lot of his early work was at warner brothers you know he showed up in movies like uh, the seahawk and santa fe trail um has a really good role in uh, a horror another horror in a horror comedy uh, not a mystery comedy a horror comedy from the early 40s called the smiling ghost but then um he uh he was released from his contract at warner's to join the air force when uh, world war ii started but because he had this chronic ear infection, he ended up being discharged from the service, uh, showed up in one of John Wayne's uh, World War II movies, Flying Tigers, and then Universal um, gave him a contract. And the reason he kind of got cast in um, in Lady on a Train is, you know, he had was basically off the strength of his uh, performance in Christmas Holiday, which we've mentioned several times now in this episode. He was in that film as well. In fact, he had been in two of Deanna's uh, previous films, Christmas Holiday and Can't Help Singing. Um, and so he was cast in this part and does well at it. You know, he he's uh, you know he's likable, he's uh, believable in the more action-oriented scenes. Yet he has good comic timing. Um, so he definitely is an actor who I you know you kind of wish you saw more of him in in this kind of uh, role and with this kind of uh, uh, chunk of a screenplay to work with. But uh, basically, such was not to be the case. You know, eventually Universal uh, uh, released him with his contract. He you know, worked in some low-budget films, did some work in some TV, up until like the, the mid-50s. He did make uh, an eventual comeback to filming in uh, the early 70s with the film uh, Moving Violation uh, with uh, Stephen McCaddy and Kay Lenz, and unfortunately died after completing his first scene in the film, uh, playing a reporter. And uh, that was one of uh, Corman's productions. We have to mention Roger Corman every chance we can get. But his uh, daughter has gone into some fame. His daughter was, well, not was, is uh, Amanda McBroom. And she had an acting career of her own. Uh, A lot of TV guest shots. I know her, and many might know her. I don't know if it's her most famous role. From the uh, Star Trek Next Generation episode, The Measure of a Man, which is kind of considered where the show that show started to actually become good after struggling in like its first one and a half seasons she plays the uh, jag officer in that who has to uh, oversee the uh, the uh, legal proceedings of that episode involving data 
but she's better known for her work as a songwriter, and she actually wrote the song The Rose, which Bette Midler made famous. Uh, and she also continued to write songs. She wrote songs for like a whole mess of universal animated films and such. But yeah, that was interesting. I had no idea that that was his daughter. And she also wrote a film, uh, I mean, not a film, she wrote a song called Errol Flynn, which uh, talk, is her kind of like talking about her dad and his life in that, in that song. Now, going back to talking about the film, we, t- we talked about it as a noir and like I said, it's also a murder mystery, and it does, you know, it does keep your, you totally engrossed in that aspect of its narrative throughout the whole film. And yeah, I mean, you kind of have an idea who, the, who the villain is. That it's one of basically two people in the movie, but um, it does do a good job at kind of like having this labyrinthine plot that start that it unwinds, and it doesn't feel the need to kind of put all the cards on the table right away as to like this is why the murder happened and this is who did it and this is why um this is who all the villains are and what their motivations are it's more about uh just bringing deanna into the situation and then we start to see people who we suspect are bad guys <laughs> um react to her and doing things to uh, keep her at bay and keep her from finding out too much and like i said the film doesn't don't need, feel the need to necessarily explain everything to us any more than in deanna durbin's character is having things explained to her so it kind of unravels like i said in, in this uh maze-like way which is definitely an interesting approach to it uh, as a comedy, because it also says, you know, has a screwball comedy element, it definitely is, you know, succeeds on that level too. You know, screwball comedies, to me, that's a genre that uh, I, I love the idea of it, but sometimes some of the some of the films uh, fall flat. I feel like, but then when you have a home run, a movie like uh, My Man Godfrey, the 1930s film with Carol Lombard, who's kind of like to me like the queen of that genre, because also Nothing Sacred, the film she did, I think that was like the next year, 1937. Uh, those are just probably two of my two favorites in that genre of screwball comedy. Um, when it, when it does well, when it's hitting all, all cylinders, it's just incredible because there's this absurdist quality to it, which I really love. Uh, and Lady on a Train definitely, uh, it definitely works uh, in that way. Durbin's character is presented to us as someone who has kind of a bit of an imagination already, um, which can kind of make it, tough for people to take her seriously when she's trying to you know tell tell them that someone's been killed but uh you know you mix you mix that in with this uh, constantly changing uh mystery that's uh playing out before her this uh idea this these these plot ideas of her having to take on another identity briefly like we talked about in the midsection of the film um all these different characters coming into play with her who, uh, like I said, they might be uh, villainous or not, uh, especially the ones connected with the family. I mean, there's just a, and the, and the constant, like I said, the constant moving from location to location with the film um, throughout the whole movie. There's just all this energy to it, basically, and all this potential for, <laughs> in a good way, confusion, not confusion for the audience, but confusion for the characters. And, in a very kinetic way. And that can, that that's like a great recipe for screwball comedy. That's what, you know, you, you think about something like My Man Godfrey, that's what that film works off a lot. It's like this, just this manic, this manic pace to it. Um, but with this, like, like I said, with a sense of like absurdism to it, uh, it's not just uh, moving fast, but with uh, no content of any interest. You know, it's not just a fast-paced film with nothing, nothing to hold you in terms of uh, its humorous elements. I mean, there's just also such a great amiable nature to the movie. Like everybody just feels like you just feel like everybody's having a good time. Um, it's just a fun film. And that really, I think part of that kind of come from just having so many great character performers in this film. I mean, it's just like when you stock a film with all these people and, and the interesting thing too, is it's even though they're great character actors, they're not necessarily all great comedic character actors. So, you know, Edward Everett Hort and William Frawley. Yeah. They were known for their comedy, even though they worked in other genres, but like I said, Dan Duryea, and Ralph Bellamy, even though they had done comedies before this, I mean, that's what Bellamy was nominated for, The Awful Truth, but they also worked in other genres as well. They worked in dramas and noirs and westerns. They're just, they're just incredibly, it's an incredibly reliable cast. Um, it's just like, you know, they only have to, they don't phone their performances in at all, but at the same time, it's like, you know, that if you're walking onto the set, that they're going to hit their marks, know their lines, and, um, just like without without a sweat, breaking a sweat, just 
deliver these incredibly accomplished performances. It's like the perfect kind of a cast you want for a film like this. And I'm sure it was a great relief too to a first-time director, you know, Charles David being a first-time director, to um, to have this cast to work with, and uh, you know, to have like such a professional cinematographer to work with. Um, I mean, you know, it's never. It's not the kind of film where you, you there's like, it's not a joke based film in the sense that like you're like oh there's this one part you gotta watch where they say you know it's not that kind of humor it's more about the uh, the humor and the movement as just all this uh, craziness is unfolding throughout the film um, that really is where it succeeds at now as we mentioned because Durbin's in the film she's got to sing some songs and sometimes with a film like this too you can you know. Uh, going into it, you're like, okay, it's it's going to be mostly comedy and murder, mystery, but Durbin's in it, so there's going to be some songs. We're just going to have to sit through those songs, um, which Durbin was incredibly gifted, talented singer, but I, you know, a lot of the songs she was singing in her movies haven't necessarily gone on to become like these classics. Um, and so sometimes when you go into a movie like this, you wonder, is this going to be the the kind of the thing where there's like a, a two minute song uh, every like 15 minutes that we're just going to kind of have to work our way through. And no, it's not like that at all. Actually, uh, she only sings three songs in the movie. Like I mentioned, one is silent night, which it's a Christmas movie. That's great. I want to have a Christmas song. And, and if anybody out there is wondering like, okay, what is it? Does it sound like any of this plot has to do with Christmas? I, I assure you, this is very much a Christmas movie. It's not just a movie set at Christmas time. It, basically 99% of the narrative takes place. Basically the entire film, except for like the end scene takes place over Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. And she sings Silent Night, and it's wintry outside. Uh, there's constant, you know, Christmas trees. You know, she goes to the uh, police station to report the murder, and William Frawley's trying to decorate a miniature Christmas tree at the uh, at, at his desk. Um, you know, the when uh, the killers tried to uh, hide the death of this man who's murdered, they try to make it seem like he died uh, from a fall while decorating his Christmas tree. Um, you know, Christmas is not just given lip service in this movie. It, it runs all throughout it. Um, so I, I want to make that clear. This is, you know, some people are like, oh, it's not really a Christmas movie. No, it, this totally is. But uh, yeah, so Silent Night, you got to have that in there. And then she sings uh, two songs later on while uh, in the guise of this um, nightclub singer that she's impersonating. And one of them is Give Me a Little Kiss, which which is very instrumental to the plot that she sings that. She sings it for a reason to, you know, uh, basically uh, 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 frustrate one of the characters. So it's played, uh, even though it gives her a chance to sing, it's also played for a comedic value. And then she sings Night and Day, you know, the famous uh, Cole Porter song. And that's the moment, I would say, where it's kind of like that classic, it could be that classical music moment where, all right, she's in a nightclub, she's impersonating a nightclub singer, we got to let Deanna do her thing. Uh, but, they shoot it so stylishly. They basically bring a film noir quality to this to the song she sings and the way they the way they film it that it just it's so visually interesting. And it's a it's a good song. You know, there's a reason that song's uh, a classic. So it's again just another level on which this film succeeds. You know, it's mixing all these genres together. It's providing Deanna with the things, the material which she's known for too. Even though she's trying something different, she's trying to play a more adult role in a, a film based less in her music it's also still kind of giving some stuff to her fans but doing it in a way that really uh appeases someone like me who who really kind of wants to see her kind of get away from some of that more music driven content um into uh you know this kind of material so it's just it's great how it blends these genres together it's great how it uh works on all these different levels unfortunately neither this nor christmas holiday really had the impact that Durbin wanted on her career pretty much after these two films neither you know they didn't really make the big splash and get the attention to her she was hoping for in a different context of the kind of role she could do and so she went back to you know had to go back to kind of doing the same kinds of films but tired of it and then ended up leaving film behind her last film uh lady of train came out in 45 her last film uh for the love of mary came out in 1948 and so she would have been uh she was born in 21 so she would have been like you know just in her late 20s and uh she was done for good um you know her her marriage to Felix Jackson, who produced a couple of these movies that she was in, ended, and she ended up actually marrying Charles David, director of Lady on a Train. Um, and I did mention that he uh, he had directed one other film, and that was another Universal movie that came out that year, 1945. That was a, a film called River Gang, a B film. But he and uh, Durbin they ended up getting married in uh, 1950. 
and they moved to France, and that's where they just stayed, uh, you know, the rest of their lives. I mean, uh, now he was a bit, he was like 15 years uh, her senior, but uh, they were married right up until his death in 1999, so almost 50 years. And uh, she had a child from a previous marriage, and then um, they had a kid, and you know, so they both grew up with them over in France. And there were many attempts to uh, lure her back into acting uh, that were entirely unsuccessful. Uh, she... Uh, seemed very happy with the change in her life. Uh, Joseph Pasternak, who was uh, a longtime producer on a lot of her movies, you know, wasn't really uh, happy about the whole idea of her retiring. I mean, he, by this time, I don't think he was making movies with her anymore, but he tried to, to, you know, change her mind about this. And she said to him, and this is a quote from her, I can't run around being a little Miss Fix-It who bursts into song, the highest paid star with the poorest material. So, you do kind of wonder if she had gotten a better response to these different kind of films she did, would that have changed the trajectory of her career and her life? I don't know, but she did seem happy with, you know, her, her retirement, her early retirement and, uh, was very much about her privacy too. I don't know. She's just a really, I find her story interesting. Uh, and even though it, it's that part of me that just wants to see her succeed on these other types of films. I'm also, it's also cool that she just eventually did her own thing and, you know, called it quits uh, when she felt rather than just keep doing material just for the sake of doing it. Uh, she just said, I'd rather not do anything. So, uh, you know, there's definitely some props, props to that kind of philosophy. So yeah, lady on a train, it was a great way to kick things off. And uh, definitely looking forward to uh, getting back to you with some more Christmas viewing experiences. But check the film out. It, like I said, there's a, a Universal DVD release of it. It was in this Deanna Durbin set they did, but it's also they, they did a standalone release of it. Or you can pick up the Blu-ray as part of the one of those film noir collections that Kina Lorber puts out. And I would love to hear your thoughts on it. And it might be streaming someplace, too. Not so sure about that. But yeah, that's going to be it for this episode this week. A little shorter. Got to jump on the couple of these files for the Blu-ray that we're going to be uh, hopefully getting to you soon, uh, first quarter next year. But thank you for staying tuned to this uh, first entry into uh, Christmas-a-thon of uh, December viewing in November. Um, but yeah, continue to spread the news about the podcast. Please continue to give us some loving reviews on whatever platform you're listening to, uh, to us on. And we will be back with you next week for another episode of Carpet City Cinema. Have a great week.